Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our discipleship pastor, Adam Scott. Amen. Amen. You guys sound great. You can go ahead and take a seat. Man, I love listening to you guys worship, engaging in worship within the context of community. Listen, I've been talking to several people, and, uh, and they're brand new, just jumping back in with us um, after getting their COVID shot or, or whatever it is that's brought them back to us, and they've said, you can replace a message online. And that's true. You can replace a message online. You cannot replace a worship experience like that. Man, it's so powerful. So listen, if, if you're watching online, we're glad that you're tuning in with us. We hope that one day you can get back into this room and you can feel God's presence in that way. Listen, I, I feel like you guys are at a disadvantage a little bit. You see, I know the sermon and I know exactly what we're going to be talking about. And I've got all those things in my heart. And man, I'm telling you, every single song that we sang collides with the message in a powerful way. And so while you guys are just getting ramped up for the sermon, the sermon is oozing out of me through this worship. And I am pumped up and excited and ready to go. So it's good stuff, good stuff. All right, let me tell you this. We are halfway through a series uh, where we're working hard to uncover the complete, the accurate, and the unfiltered picture of the real Jesus. You see, so far in this series, we've, we've talked about the incarnate Jesus, which means God putting on flesh so that he could be with his people. We've also talked about the King Jesus and how as him being our king, it changes the way we live our lives. It changes our priorities. It changes everything about us. But today, as Mike already introduced, we're talking about the crucified Jesus. You know, we just sang about it. We said, oh, the cross of Jesus Christ is the reason that I'm alive. And we believe that and we celebrate that and we're going to unpack that together today. You see, Romans 5, 8, it sets it up in this way. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, this right here, this truth that this verse uh, explains to us, this thing that brings us together so that we can uncover the real Jesus, this is the epicenter of our faith. This is the climax of the Christian story. This is where our sin, meaning our rebellious choices, the things that we've done that, that cause us to turn away from God and put our hope and our trust in anything other than him, this is where all of those things collide with God's grace and God's love. Listen, I recently heard the transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship and Canadian authorities. And I don't believe it's real. Okay, I haven't been able to prove that this was an actual conversation that took place. Oh, but man, it sets us up with a powerful illustration. I want to read it to you. The Americans said this in a radio broadcast. They said, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadian authorities, they weren't having any of it. They responded, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans were getting a little puffed up at this. They were getting frustrated and they said, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians came back. They said, no, I say again, you divert your course. At this point, the Americans were furious 
And so with all the authority they had, they responded with this. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and a numerous number of support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians responded with this. This is a lighthouse. The call is yours. You see, I I didn't hear how it ended, but I imagine they diverted their course. Why? Because we all recognize the power of collisions, right? I mean, we learned this at a young age on the playground. Two of my three kids have been in the emergency room because they've collided with another kid on the playground. Broken bones and concussions are a very real reminder of the power of collisions. We learn this again when we start driving. You know, we turn 15 or 16 years old, and we're lucky if we get out of that season of life with nothing more than a fender bender. You see, collisions are a lesson that we learn over and over and over, that there's power in those things. Well, get this, the collision of God's love with our sin is no different. You see, it created an explosion in our world that altered the course of human history. You see, the collision of God's love and the crucifixion of Jesus, it gave us hope. It gave us life, and it gave us victory. But let me explain something to you. The collision of God's love through the crucifixion of Jesus was not just the single greatest standalone event in all of human history. You see, what I mean by that is that it created a series of explosions that are continuing to happen through each and every one of us that calls him Lord and Savior. You see, he started a movement. It wasn't a one-time deal. It was something that changed us, that revolutionized our lives so that we could go into the world and be used by him in a powerful way. Here's my sermon in a sentence. God's love is alive through us. You see, God's love was alive on the cross, and today God's love is alive through us. His crucifixion gave us a purpose, and it gave us a mission to make him known in this world. We, you and I, those of us who call on his name, we are the aftershock of his great collision. We are his next great demonstration of love. We are his plan for what people would see and feel and experience that would point them back to his love on the cross. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to take a look at this passage in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to pull some truths out of it. And if you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that my desire is that you would see his love for you in this passage. That you would understand more about who he is and what his crucifixion meant. But if you've already made that decision, I believe there is a deep-rooted challenge in this text that's going to cause us to get up and walk out of these doors and live our lives differently with a mission and a purpose to make him known in this world. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The story begins in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. This is what it says. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. You see, Jesus' first question is about public opinion. 
He asked his disciples, who do people around you say that I am? Now, the Jewish people, they didn't believe in the reincarnation of of Elijah or John the Baptist, but they did believe that departed souls could empower people to carry on their work in this world. And so to compare Jesus to Elijah or to John the Baptist or to one of these great prophets was meant to be a compliment. You see, these were great men of faith. These were people that were well-respected and sought after. These men had accomplished great things, but they were all dead, making these comparisons completely inadequate. You see, Jesus was something different, and Jesus was something more. That's why he continues the conversation with his disciples, and he says this in verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? See, he asked, do you believe that I'm a prophet? Do you believe that I'm a good teacher, or do you believe that I am something more? See, you might think that this was an easy question for the disciples to answer, I mean, these guys have been with Jesus for a couple years at this point. Surely they're going to answer this question right and they're going to get a pat on the back and the story is going to end and things are going to move on. But what you got to understand is up to this point, the disciples have not demonstrated a real clear understanding of who Jesus was. But see, that all changed in this moment when Peter answered, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You see, Peter, characteristically, he steps up and he answers for the group. A lot of times Peter does this and he puts his foot in his mouth. A lot of times he speaks up and he says things that are ridiculous, things that Jesus has to correct. There's other times that Peter speaks up and he says things that are powerful, strong, and true. But listen, never does Peter shine more brightly than he does right here in this story. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus tells Peter, he says, that answer is so accurate. It's so on, on, on point that it must have come from God himself. Because what you just said is absolutely true. Listen, some translations in your Bible, Peter uses the word Messiah. and some translations, he uses the word Christ, but they both mean the same thing. Peter calls Jesus the anointed one. The one who has been set apart by the power and purpose of God. He says, Jesus, you are the one that generations have been waiting for. You are the one that is here to change the world. You are the one who's going to bring about salvation. Listen, God's love and our mission, it begins with the same phrase that Peter used. Jesus is the Christ. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is and what he has done. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He can do what no one else can do. He is the one that brings light to the darkness. He is the one who gives hope to the hopeless. He is the one who makes a way for the aimless. He is the one who provides healing for the broken. He is the one who brings about restoration and salvation to the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen, there's a lot of power behind Peter's simple statement. Let me tell you something. My son... He's sitting over here, and he loves bugs and animals and anything that crawls on the earth, okay? 
And, and if you drive by my house at any given time, you'll probably see him in his underwear chasing after one of these things. Okay? Yesterday, middle of the afternoon, he was chasing after butterflies okay? in the front yard in his underwear, and he caught them. Okay? They didn't land on a flower. He just dove and caught them in midair. Okay? This is how he lives his life. If you'd driven by at night, you would have seen us out there with flashlights because springtime is here and the frogs are finally back out. And He's got night vision goggles and he's, he's chasing down frogs and throwing them all in these cages. We torture things around my house, okay? But as he's passionate about these things, we're reading books about animals and critters and all this different stuff. We're watching videos and documentaries that tell us about this, but there is one fact that I am shielding him from with everything in me. Don't let him hear this right now, okay? You can tell whether a snake is venomous by the shape of its eyes. Now, why in the world would I try and shield my son from that truth? Why is it not a good idea to tell my son that he can determine the power of a snake's bite by getting into its face and staring at the shape of its eye? Listen, it can be done, but it is terribly costly to do so. Let me tell you something. What's true of snakes is also true of Jesus. When you take a good, long, hard look at his face, when you look at who he is and what he has done, when you look at what the early Christians said about him, it is impossible to miss the power in his name. And let me tell you something. When you recognize the power of his name, it's costly because it changes us from the inside out. Listen, there's a lot of powerful forces at work in our world. There's money, there's charisma, there's all sorts of different things, beauty, fame, every Baldwin County basketball team. There's a lot of powerful forces in our world right now, but they all pale in comparison to Jesus. See, a lot of people treat Jesus or Christianity as a good idea, as a tradition to be honored or a box to be checked. But let me tell you something, Jesus is so much more. When we look closely at him, when we recognize his identity, he will become our everything. Not a good teacher, not a model citizen, but the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where his love and our mission all begins. Jesus affirms Peter's confession, but then he goes on to clarify his understanding of it. This is what he says, starting in verse 31. It says, he then, meaning Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes right here, okay? You just declared physically, face-to-face with Jesus that you believe he is the Messiah. He is the one that holds all power in the universe. He can do anything. Jesus was impressed with your answer. He pats you on the back. He declares that it was a supernatural understanding that came from God. But then Jesus begins to speak. And he says, I may have all the power in the world, but I'm about to be crucified and put to death by the powers of this world. Listen, we give the disciples a hard time for not always understanding what Jesus was trying to do, but this is tough stuff right here. But whether they understand it or not, Jesus is on a mission to demonstrate his love through his death. And from this point forward, Jesus is going to be up front. 
And he's going to speak plainly to his disciples about this. You see, they expect an earthly kingdom with a human army, but instead they're going to get a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly army. They expect liberation from Rome through a conquering king, but what they're going to get instead is liberation from sin through a risen Lord. It's a much better deal than they anticipated, but listen, it's a tough pill to swallow, and it's going to take time for them to understand this and embrace it. As a matter of fact, Peter is listening to this, and he's overwhelmed by what Jesus is saying, and he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. He said, this is tough. This isn't right. I'm going to correct things before things get out of hand. And this is what he says in verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, in the Greek, in the original language, it's a little bit stronger than rebuke him. It basically means when very, very hot places begin to get very, very cold. Okay? That's what he's saying to Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus refers to his right-hand man, the one he's just praised for understanding who he is and why he came as the devil. Why? Because Jesus' death was necessary, not only to fulfill God's law, but also to bring about the salvation of sins. Peter's protest was a challenge. It was a temptation for Jesus to be selfish and abandon his mission altogether. Here's the second thing that this story teaches us. It's something that Peter understands 2,000 years ago, and it's a truth that we still struggle to understand today, and it's this. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when we think our way is better, he is the authority. Listen, a couple weeks ago, I took my truck to my brother. He lives out in Coweta County, and he's got a lift that he can raise my truck up on, and I told him I needed it leveled. And he knows about all this stuff, and so he told me, bring it to me, and you can help me, and together we'll make this thing happen. So I showed up ready to work. You know what happened instead? I listened to him say a lot of things that I didn't understand. For five minutes and 10 minutes and 30 minutes, I didn't do anything but watch. An hour came around, and all of a sudden, one of the guys in the shop brought me a chair to sit in because they recognized I wasn't going to do a thing to make this happen. You know what I did in that chair? I took pictures just like this with him underneath my car. He would say, I think this is what needs to happen. He'd say, I think this is the problem. I'm stuck, but I think I can figure it out. And I would just nod along and say, okay, like I understood what he was talking about, but deep down I had no idea what was going on. Listen, here's the lesson. In Christianity, as in car mechanics, you don't have to understand every detail. You just have to trust the one who is giving the instructions. Listen, Peter didn't understand, but still following Jesus required faith. I like the way Mark Moore, he's the guy that wrote this Core 52 book that we're looking at throughout this whole year. He says this, if Jesus' words sound strange or even horrible, it is due to our short-sightedness or misunderstanding, not to his folly. You see, he calls the shots. He is the lead. He is the standard. And our job, our responsibility is obedience, even in the absence of understanding. Listen, I recognize that this sounds absolutely foolish to people who have not put their hope and trust in Jesus. But for those of us that have, man, this is a core principle that we have to embrace if we want to experience his love and let his love be experienced through us. 
Can I give you some practical areas where the rubber meets the road on this? One of the areas that the rubber meets the road on this for me is the issue of cohabitation. Listen, I'm not trying to call anybody out, but let me tell you, if, if it were me writing God's law and God's plan, the idea of living together before marriage would make sense, okay? I believe that at that place, you could, you could understand compatibility, and that would help you before you make a lifelong commitment to one another. But God's law declares something different. He says, that's not right. That's not my plan. That's not what I want for my people. And you know what? Statistics show that his way works better than the world's way. And all of a sudden, I'm left realizing that God actually knows what he's talking about, even when I don't understand it. You know, this comes to light in this issue of homosexuality. This is a major issue in our world right now, and we're constantly being pulled in a direction that says God's word is not true. God's word is not the law that we live by. Man, it would be so easy to just throw up our hands and say, I give up. I don't care. It doesn't matter anymore. But God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and we have to stand on his truth even when it doesn't make sense. Now, that doesn't mean we beat people on the head that are living differently than than God's way, that are not part of God's kingdom. But for those of us that are in the kingdom of God, we've got to embrace his plan over all things. Another area that this becomes real for me is in this idea of community. You see, I would ask you to raise your hand if you're an introvert, but none of you are going to do it. Okay? But listen, God says where two or more are gathered, there I am. There's something about doing community that brings us closer to Jesus. And for a lot of people, that's a challenging step to make. Right now, we're in a world that's making it easier and easier for you to just stay at home and to make your faith a personal thing that doesn't involve anybody else. But as we come out of this COVID season, there's something significant that happens when we say community is God's plan and whether I understand it or not. Whether it pushes me out of my comfort zone or not, I'm going to surrender to his plan and do the things that he wants me to do. And I'm going to embrace community as part of the Christian experience. Listen, the list goes on and on and on. We get to decide where our truth comes from. But get this, he won't be Lord without also being the authority. He is either in the driver's seat or he is not in the car at all. He is either everything or he is is nothing. Who is he to you? This is something I have to wrestle with on a daily basis, and it's something I believe we're all called to wrestle with as well. Listen, this is where I want to end the message. We only have a couple minutes left. I was kind of hoping I would run out of time so I didn't have to give you this third point. Okay, these these first two points have a lot of power in them. This one is a tough pill to swallow, but Jesus isn't done yet. You see, he's the Christ, he's the authority, but he's also something else. This is what it says in verse 34 through 35. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Listen, not only would Jesus deny himself, Not only would he take up his cross, not only would he require acceptance of this fact, Jesus also requires participation. You see, the cross isn't merely what Jesus did for us. It's what he modeled for us. It's what he calls us to do for others. Here's the final lesson from this passage of Scripture. Jesus is the example. He is the example. Something interesting happens at this point in the story. 
You see, all of a sudden, Jesus goes from teaching his 12 disciples to teaching a large crowd full of people. I read commentaries this week, and they talked about how Jesus probably wanted some alone time with his disciples, and these crowds encroached upon Jesus and what he was doing. But see, when I read the story, I see something different. Jesus called the crowds together to hear this same teaching. Here's what I think happened. I think if we had seen Jesus teaching only his 12 disciples this truth, we would have assumed that this was a simple thing that they had to follow and we didn't have to. I think we would have seen that as our escape clause. We would have said this is a truth for them, not for us. But Jesus calls the crowds together so that we would understand that this is a call he has for every Christian for all time. Being a disciple 2,000 years ago, just as it is today, is not just receiving what Jesus did. It's imitating how he lived. It's daily dying to ourselves so that we can live for him. Listen, Tony Evans, he talks about it in this way. He says, discipleship always includes information, but discipleship, meaning following Jesus more closely, is not complete until it also includes emulation. Listen, we emulate Jesus when we surrender anything that compromises complete and total obedience to his plan and his purpose. It's when we say, listen, I am so passionate about God and I am so passionate about the gospel that I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I'm so passionate about God. I'm so passionate about the gospel. I'm so passionate about the people that God has placed in my life that I am willing to pursue them at all costs, even if it means taking up a cross, even if it means denying myself, even if it means giving up something that I care about, even if it means changing my priorities because I want every person in the world to experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ through what he did on the cross. Listen, are you that passionate about Jesus and about his plan for you in your life? Listen, we sang about it just a few minutes ago. We said, wherever you lead me, whatever it costs me, all I want is you. Suffering and sacrifice are his greatest achievements. Those are the greatest things that Jesus did for us. But listen, he calls us to be willing to make the same sacrifices so that we might enhance the kingdom of God by bringing lost people into a relationship with him. Listen, God's love is alive through us. He is the Christ. He is the authority. He is the example. When we embrace this and apply it to our lives, it will change the world. That's what we're praying for, that the world would be changed through Northridge Christian Church. Here's how we're going to end this. So I think there's probably some people that are in the room right now that don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never experienced that love for yourself. I want you to hear nothing but that in this passage. And I want you to respond to that over the next few moments. We're going to have Mike over on one side. I'll be over here on the other side. And we would love to talk with you, to pray with you, and to help you take your next step in trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But listen, if you've already done that, you're not off the hook. You see, we're going to move into a time of communion. This is a time where we take the juice that represents Christ's blood and the bread that represents his body, and we simply say, thank you, Jesus. But here's what I want you to do today. I want you to thank him, but I also want you to give him or ask him to give you the strength to model that in the lives of the people he's placed in your path. That through you, people might experience the gospel. That through you, people might be brought closer to Jesus. That through you, lives would be changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. 
thank you for the crucifixion. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for salvation and hope and opportunity. God, we thank you for showing up in our moment of weakness and loving us unconditionally. God, I pray above all else, God, that every person in this room, every person that's watching online would feel that love in their life right now. God, I pray that they would be overwhelmed by all that you've done for us. But God, I pray that those who experience that would take it a step farther, that they would put down just that first truth and say, I'm gonna not just experience it, but I'm going to live it out in my life by being passionate about you and the things that you want me to do in the lives of others. God, I pray that we would be a group of people that makes you known in this world, a group of people that that demonstrate your love in a powerful, real, tangible way and that bring people into a relationship with you. God, during this communion time, we just simply say thank you and we say empower us to do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at